Hello and welcome to St. Patrick's Podcast with me, Martina Purdy. And with me, Elian Kelly, and we're coming to you from St. Patrick's Centre in the heart of Downpatrick. Today we're talking to well-known local historian and St. Patrick's Way guy, Dwayne Fitzsimons. Local boy Dwayne is from the home of St. Patrick and can trace his ancestry in this area all the way back to the Anglo-Normans who came to the east of Ulster in the 12th century. Dwayne has a deep love of his ancestry and all things connected to the Lakeal area and St. Patrick. He is a registered tour guide with a background in architecture. He offers walking and coach tours and, in his own words, the kind of tours that help you to get to know the area as well as a local person. Dwayne has a love of history with a self-confessed passion for the outdoors. He's also a published author and has appeared in several television programs about St. Patrick's country. Today he's speaking to us about his life's journey and his special attachment to St. Patrick's country and St. Patrick himself. And we are delighted to welcome Duane in person to our St. Patrick Centre studio. So welcome Duane. Good afternoon, um, Elaine, and hello Martina. Hello Duane, it's great to have you here in person because most of our guests are down the line due to COVID and distance. So you hadn't far to travel today? No, not too far at all. It's um, definitely in the back door anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so can we begin by taking you right back to where it all started for you growing up in Ardglass, just seven miles from Downpatrick. Tell us the story of how you became so steeped in this country. So when I was growing up, it wasn't really a deep love of it. It was through um, school that I got to know um, all the sites of local interest and mostly through old photographs of them. And when I was about 11 or so, I went out to photograph these places, put them into art portfolios. And then when I got much older, say about um, 21 or so, graduated out of university, ended up um, getting involved in um, research into the heritage of Strangford and Portaferry. That lit a fire within me that just kind of stuck with me. And then I started blogging about this particular area because I knew that through stories that my grandmother would have told me when I was growing up that there's something very, very special and unique about this area of Lakeal. And there's so much concentrated history and heritage within it that I just decided, decided to start writing it down and bring it into one central location because there's bits of it everywhere, but it needs someone who's local to know exactly where you're coming from to get that information all together. So that, that's where my passion was. It was trying to tie all these narratives together into one story of a local area. So, Dwayne, you talk about a fire being lit within you. So tell us a little bit about your fascinating local ancestry and its connections to the famous John de Courcy, the Earl of Ulster. So the surname I have is Fitzsimons, which is a Norman um, kind of... Um, derived from a Norman surname, meaning the son of Simon. Some would say the illegitimate son of Simon. So um, generally it just means it's someone who was very important, had an illegitimate child that was able to carry on some form of line of that family. We don't know who Simon was. Um, the thought is that it's one of the savages. But as well as that, there are other branches of my family, which would have been the Crawley family from um, Downpatrick, and they were originally called Swords. Um, but they, the local history is that we arrived in January 1177 in the middle of the night with John de Courcy and he overthrew the local king and he had 300 foot soldiers that defeated an army of 10,000 Irishmen. So it's quite a spectacular story. I'm often asked, um, how do you feel about you know your ancestors coming into this area, destroying what was there and killing so many people? And then I have to look at other parts of my ancestry. We are um, Scots, we are planters, we are also um, Native Irish and we're a Viking. And all of that kind of mingles within me. 
and it's about telling the story of that the local area through these different visions through these different eyes that um i really enjoy bringing people into it and explaining why we stayed here like it's very very unique 800 years we've been in one location um but why what's so unique about this area and it is just the serenity of it i believe um it's very, very detached from the rest of the world. And it's a place just to escape it all. And I can't ever, ever imagine myself living more than a stone's throw away from it. That's how passionate I... I was driving down the road to my dad's house. And just as I turned the corner, I seen a long half-mile straight road ahead of me. And I was like, I am home. There's a settling in your heart when you just turn that corner. Certainly, it is a place of outstanding beauty. And uh, Elaine and I, we arrived here about two years ago. So we have kind of been learning about the area and... That's part of our journey as pilgrim guides, but you're already a big part of the story. So you talked about the uniqueness of the area. Take take us back to pre-Decorsi, before we kind of talk about the Battle of Dan Patrick, which took place not far from the centre. This was a very unique kind of peninsula. And tell us how it got the name of Lacale. It's, it's actually, it is referred to as Lacale, but it's kind of ironic given that Patrick is really uh, the person who, who brought it to fame. So thanks very much for being so complimentary there, Martina. <laughs> uh, it's before the Normans arrived. St Patrick was a forgotten figure in Irish history. Um, John de Courcy was from Yorkshire. He would have known about this St Patrick being buried here in Town Patrick, but also that St Bridget and St Columba were also sent as well. Because if you think about it, for him to get to London was more difficult than for him to cross the Irish Sea. And realistically, he would have had a knowledge of what was here before. So. Up until the Normans arrived, um, we had the Viking invasions for about 300 years or so. And as I say, my family were involved in those. Uh, my mum's surname is Sharvan, which means literally the bitter-faced one. Um, <laughs> so I found it quite difficult to smile. <laughs> well, you do, you do the smiling quite well, Duane. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with the um, invasions of the Vikings, it was decided that um, St Bridget's remains should be brought to Town Patrick for protection and that St Columbus' remains should be brought also so St Bridget arrived in 834 and St Columba in 877. And the reason they were brought to Down Patrick was that the local um, war- local warrior lords, they were the Delfeta, and they were able to fend off the Vikings. They had kind of an understanding with each other that they wouldn't invade. Now, I say that, but Down Patrick burned six or seven times between um, a 250-year period up until the arrival of the Normans. Some of them were definitely malicious attacks. One of them was a thunderstrike. But... Um, it was a very, very easily defended place. It was a peninsula. At high tide, you couldn't get across it. At low tide, you had a very, very marshy ford to walk over. So it was very detached from the rest of its um, hinterland. And it was actually known uh, more anciently as Machenis, the island plain. And Lakeel comes from a warrior called Cahill, who was arri- alive in about 800 AD. And Cahill was a local kind of, it literally means Cahill's half. So Cahill was a joint king and said that this other co-king was Madigan, who was up in Belfast. So the Ulster area derives from what is basically parts of counties down in, and Antrim. And that kind of spread across then when the O'Neills came in and they subsumed in those parts. And that's where Ulster comes from. It was the um, down and Antrim section originally. And then just as the O'Neills took over, the whole area became known as Ulster. Well then, going back to John de Courcy, um, was Dan Patrick the name in existence when he arrived? So the original name for Dan Patrick was Rathkelter or Arras Kelter, which goes back to a legendary warrior called Kelter of um, Macdu. And he had 
in the Annals of Ulster, it describes his spear as being so ferocious it had to be held in a cauldron of fire so that you couldn't get your hands on it. It would literally, it was unwieldy. It would kill people without intent. And um, So much for this peaceful place that you uh, love to come <laughs> home to. <laughs> Keep talking. So... Um, Kelter was Kelter of the battles. Um, he was very wary, dark hair, dark eyed, um, and very ferocious looking. Um, then after that, when St. Patrick arrived, um, the local king took um, Deku's sons. Um, he was King Lyra, and he held them in two chains, or he held them in chains. And St. Patrick sent an angel that broke these two chains, and that gives down Patrick its middle um, kind of period name, which was Dunyalethglesh, which means the fort of the two halves of the chain. There's some different interpretations of that, but the legend is that St. Patrick sent an angel that broke the chain that held the two sons, and they carried those chains back to Down Patrick. One was held on Cathedral Hill, and the other was held at the Mound of Down. So that Mound of Down is quite a significant place. It's actually where County Down gets its name from. Um, it's quite a large fort, um, unfinished by the Normans, but they just kind of came in, they built a mot on top of it and didn't finish it, but it was just there as a symbol. We can do this too if you want us to. <laughs> so they were very, very angry kind of people, but it was more about a demonstration of what they could do to, on the landscape. And so going back to Down Patrick and de Courcy, mm-hmm. did he give it to, did he give Down Patrick its name? So um what John de Courcy did when he arrived, knowing that there were three saints here, he decided that um the bishop who was here, Malachi, was to find these three saints. So for, it was 1185, John de Courcy arrived um, about eight years before that. And in 1185, during a prayer, the bishop's attention was drawn to a particular spot within the cathedral when the light shone upon it. And he went over, he opened up the floor and he seen the three saints in a triple grave, St. Patrick in the middle and Bridget and Columbia either side. Doesn't say which sides they were on. <laughs> but um, de Courcy then sent for a cardinal to come from Rome. Now, this is the interesting bit, because that cardinal was actually in the in Down Patrick area in January 1177, and when John de Courcy arrived, he actually threw the local chieftain's household out with the cardinal in tow, and he was stood there in his night attire, um, completely disgraced the family. But this cardinal decided, do you know what? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You're doing this for the good of the church. And he came back, and he interred the three saints into one tomb within the cathedral. Some of the relics at that time would have been taken off then to Rome, so there are parts of St. Patrick and St. Bridget and St. Columba all over the place. And St. Bridget, I think, is by far the most travelled. But um, (laughs) St. Patrick, um, at that time, we probably have the shrine of St. Patrick's uh, forearm coming out then, and also his jawbone, so they would have been here in Ireland. His jawbone, I think, shows that he was about six feet tall. I think I read that. Uh, I, I haven't read that one myself, but it, it would make how he was able to win people over a bit more demonstrable if he was able to stand tall mm. among the people. Um, if you think back then, like six feet tall is quite a, it really quite is quite a height. Yeah, it would yeah. be quite imposing. Well, just to, there's so much there to unpack, but um, we uh, bring people as pilgrim guides to the grave and it's a very complex story about how... Um, uh, the, the three ended up in the one grave. And you also talked there about uh, the Mound of Down. And, and we often bring people there and we say, have you ever heard of the Battle of Dan Patrick? And most people haven't. And it's such a, 
it's such a poignant site because it really changed history here and uh, people are really kind of amazed that it's just a f- just over the hill from the center. So uh, your uh, ancestors came with uh, John de Courcy and defeated uh, the local chieftain Roaring Back Dunleavy. Do, do you know much about that, you know, the, your ancestry involvement or can you tell us a little bit about the story of the battle? So that particular part is missing. I don't know whether it's just been washed out of the family history but I imagine that's what's happened. They, they were kind of a bit ashamed that they <laughs> had spilt blood in order to do it. John de Course himself was ashamed, of course, because he built um, Inchabi as part of his penance for that. And um, it, well, it was that and also the destruction of an abbey. But if you go back to what the description of that battle would be, they had far superior weapons to the Irish. Irish were armed with axes and arrows, perhaps. But um, the Normans would have brought with them a sword so if you come up against someone with a sword, they would come in from the neck and they would literally have severed you right down the side of your spine and your body, the top half of your body would just fall into the side. And it just, it, it's really, really gruesome. It's said that when the battle was over and you trod across the ground, the blood actually oozed out of it. So it's so, so like kind of macabre that I think that part's just been etched out, etched out of the family history. That we don't have that tradition carrying on. And I'm sorry, Martina, yes. just, uh, just to cut in here, there's, I have a question that uh, I think we've kind of answered, but I get it many times when people come up on the pilgrimages with us to St. Patrick's grave. I always tell them this. I always say that the best evidence is that Patrick is buried there. And um, would you agree then with that? Yeah. With, with Bridget and Colin Kill, to a degree. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that because I've the family history in a book here. <laughs> and it's it's the book of Archbishop um, William Crawley's biography written by his nephew. And it's not the family history that's in it, but he has a snippet in it about the assertion of Crawley as being a really good bishop because he came from the area St. Patrick worshipped in and founded his ministry. And within that, it explains that in the Downpatrick area, St. Patrick was here, buried at Downpatrick. St. Bridget was sent later on, and then St. Columba came after that, that... The, bur- the burning of the town and the need to conceal the uh, grave until John de Courcy arrived was written into it. And then if you go through all the traditions that fall in with this, th- in about 1790, when they were doing the renovations in the cathedral to make it into the building it is today, they cleared it off the dead of all descriptions. So every grave within that building would have been taken out. But one of the descriptions is that in a, late in the evening, they opened up the tomb that had the three saints within it and the people of St. Patrick, before the bones were thrown out, took them and they buried them at that location where they are today. And you have a unique connection mm. to William Crawley, um, who was a bishop from St. Patrick uh, and he actually was involved in building St. Patrick's Church in Belfast and St. Malachy's College. Yeah. So tell us about your connection to William Crawley. So... William Crawley's own biography skips out a lot of family detail. I think it's because it was written by his nephew. He didn't want to look like he's blowing his own trumpet. And that's (laughs) something that I don't like doing either. But um, William Crawley was my great, 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 great uncle. He was the brother of my great, great grandfather. No, great, great, great grandfather's wife. (laughs) That's very impressive, (laughs) Dwayne. I think that's the sixth (laughs) generation. I think that's going back six generations mm. for me. So 
he um, he lived in Downpatrick. He was schooled and educated in Downpatrick at a kind of school of mixed faiths. And then one of his teachers was taken into prison because he was believed to be have United Irish affiliations. And the remarkable thing about William Crawley is he still attended school in the jail. He he actually went to Down Country Museum when it was a jail mm. and was educated there. It's really, really amazing, that story. But within that, there's a story that as one of the fellows was about to leave the school and finish up his learnings, um, they had a dinner in Downpatrick and it was time of martial law. And William Crawley was at this dinner, knew that he was out after his hours and the curfew had kicked in. And he said, I can't stay here. I, I actually can't because my mother will send someone looking out, for, looking out for me and they will end up in trouble. So he got onto his horse and he rode across um, the road across Irish Street, Outstream Street, and across towards Ballykilbeg. And on the way, he encountered the uh, dragoons. They then um, called him back. He refused to turn the horse, and he bolted across two fields. When he got back to the house, he tried to calm the horse down, calm down the breathing, so it wasn't a, a, a obvious that the horse been running. And they got into the house, and his mother had said, I've just sent your father and one of the servants out to look for you. And then they managed to hide, but the dragoons came, they came into the house, they seen a huge Bible sitting there and just assumed, oh, these people are not Catholics and walked out. (laughs) (laughs) They were a very wealthy family and only because of that they were able to afford that large Bible that sat there. So, Duane, you're also an architect by, by training. So how does that day job fit in with your busy life? So I studied architecture, not not an architect, but um, what I do in my day job is I um, work for Belfast City Council as their outdoor recreation education officer, which is all about public rights away, land mapping, and that's where my passion really lies. I love reading very, very old maps and getting the history of them. So um, we have Damien here. He pulled together... um, Damien's our producer. (laughs) Damien uh, pulled together a book for me and Councillor Cadogan Enright and we went round the fourth edition of the Ordnance Survey mapping all the old routes. I think we've got 72 in total and we went round to the local people, got their names of them and recorded any folklore, any traditions that went with that. So that um, one single book actually got me the day job I'm in now because I got to know (laughs) the legislation so well. And um, that's that's how it fits in. The kind of passion for the landscape, the telling the story of the landscape and walking these routes and making sure that they're open and free of obstruction because it is really a very, very unique landscape that we have here. And if we can preserve and protect that and keep it open, it's really for the benefit of all. So really that all ties in with your fascination, your lifelong fascination really with this area, St Patrick's Country. But tell us about your lifelong fascination, should I say it, or attraction, passion to Patrick the Man. So my passion for St Patrick comes from this idea that we have so many sites in this area associated with him. He started out here, he landed at the Slaney River, he was granted Saul by a local chieftain named Deku, and he then set out to go to Armagh. In all of the travels that Patrick did, he had his heart set in Armagh, so when he retired, he didn't go back to Armagh, he came back to Down Patrick, and I don't know what it was about us, it must be the easygoing nature of us all, (laughs) but he decided that was where he was spending his final years. When he felt the evening of his life drawing near, he decided that, I want to die in Armagh, but he was visited by an angel who told him, no, you'll die at Saul. 
your body will go to St. Patrick and your spirit will remain in Armagh. But because St. Patrick actually started out here, he returned here and he passed away here, it's a very, very, very unique place that we have. And just to get to the humanity of the man, if you read through his confession, that details so much about how he got around the country. He was a very, very humble person. So while he may have had the wealth of his followers to get him through the country, he was humbled by that. He didn't ever um, take it for granted. But one of the most remarkable things about him is he must have been a very, very persuasive man. So to turn a country that was very, very pagan into a country that believed in one single God is the most unique thing about it. People wouldn't have been used to the idea of one God before. They would have had multiple gods. But St. Patrick was able to convince these people that his one God was the one that they should all follow. And how he did that was he had remarkable skills, people, skilled people with him. So we have St. Tassic, who made his crozier. And he would have also made his chalices. So these were the symbols of Patrick's wealth and his authority over the Irish. And because he had those things, that's how he was so persuasive. And we even have St. Tassic's church in this area. So that's where St. Tassic is buried. It's where he started out. But because that's all in this one single location, that's where my passion comes from. The fact that within a full day, I can take you through the whole of St. Patrick's story, just walking about six miles or so. But do you think that... um Patrick, it had to have a bit more about him than that, that it had to be a supernatural power behind him, that he that his faith, that he had a mission, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Do, do you see that? Uh, is that something that you would recognize? Because, I mean, I could arrive with plenty of wealth at that time, maybe as a you know, tall, persuasive person, but I think it had to be a bit more. So what struck Patrick out as very different to anybody who'd gone before him was that he was here as a slave, for six years, so during that time, he would have got to know the Irish language, the customs of the people, and how to pass himself with them. He wasn't coming into this blind. He knew that he was what he was walking into. He didn't want to walk into it, but he was directed by the Holy Spirit to come and do it. And that's what I think struck Patrick as different. He knew deep down in his heart that he had a mission to fulfil, and he did it, and he did it quite remarkably. But... Um, the idea that uh, that Patrick was able to do this is so, so unique. Like the, Rome had sent a bishop the year before he arrived and that bishop was in no by no means successful. We had pockets of Christians all over Ireland but by the time that Patrick had arrived. But it was St. Patrick who un- unified that into one whole church for the island, which and is the most unique thing. And you bring people to his landing point, uh, and that's a bit of a surprise. So that's the Patrick and the Pagan Hills tour that you do, the guided pilgrimage. Tell us a little bit about about that landing point, that he came here in 432 AD. So the landing point is a very, very unique place. So it's the Slaney River, Inverslan, the river of, of, of health. And what um, makes it unique is the place that river has its source is Loch Money. And around that we've got... Thousands, well not thousands, (laughs) thousands of artefacts perhaps. We've got tens of numbers of Neolithic sites of interest and these all hark back to that idea of pagan ritual within these hills that before Patrick arrived we had a very unique way of memorialising our dead and the river has its source up on those hills. 
So that's where I start out in the walk and I bring people down through the traditions of the kind of very Celtic landscape and bring them down then to the landing point and explain how Patrick was so successful in getting people to convert. So when Patrick arrived, he had been blown in through the narrows of Strangford Lock and he arrived at um, the Slaney. So overlooking that, there's a small lookout fort. But on the back of a TV programme I was recently on Matins Way, I was quite fortunate just this week to be actually taken out onto Deku's Fort. Now, I had never heard of Deku's Fort because it's not on the Sites and Monuments record, so any searching I had done before would never have shown it up. But what was so remarkable about Deku's Fort was that it overlooks the Slaney Estuary. But when you turn the other way, you've got Down Cathedral in the back, so that's where the Delphi had their seat at the time. And if you turn the opposite way, you can see Rahulp, then, as you come around towards Down Cathedral, you can see the valley where Saul is. And from this one location, when you hear that Deku granted him Saul, which was a barn, to Patrick, you really can kind of understand that there's no other place that landing could have taken place. Patrick would have definitely been seen by Deku. And when Patrick went down to Deku, or when Deku went down to Patrick, he Deku drew his sword, held it out above his head to strike out, and what really worried Deku was that when he was standing on the shore, his dog, which was like rabbit, going to go for Patrick, suddenly when Patrick stepped off the boat, went calm. But Deku, seeing this, raised his sword to strike out and felt this intervention happening within his arm where it froze. And he, like if you feel the weight of a sword, I'm sure it's not easy to hold it up in the air. But Deku froze his, in the spot and realised Patrick was doing something very, very different. There was something really supernatural going on, and he became gentle and allowed Patrick to baptise him. And the Patrick in the Pagan Hills uh, walk is really to explain how Patrick was so successful in that, but also to get people out onto the landscape, because it's a very, very unique place. You're, so, you're just walking through the countryside, and about half a mile down a long kind of grassy lane, you arrive then on the shore of Strangford Lock, so how I saw on Twitter that you had this uh, experience of um, DQ's fort. So just explain how that happened off the back of Mahan's Way. And is it going to be something that you can add to your to your guided tour of the Pagan Hills? So the fort itself, um, I won't be able to add in because it's just it's a bit too distant to get up there. But from the landing point, you'll be able to see the fort. Um, and what, what happened was... Uh, it was actually going back to that idea of getting inspired. It was the art teacher who actually owns the land. And he um, decided that he wanted me to come out onto his land to talk about Patrick. And I, I knew that this man's from Rahulp. And I, I just assumed, why would he want me to go out onto his fields? I think he lives in the middle of Rahulp. What, what use would that be to me? And I, he rang me beforehand. And just when I arrived at the site, he says, now we're going to actually go out onto Deku's Fort. And I, I just like... What? And it was this really kind of down this lane, across the field, and then you're on top of a hill. And he explained to me that in the hedge, there's a stone with a cross carved on it. There's also a pillar on top of the hill, which was whitewashed every St. Patrick's Day until fairly recent times. And that pillar is said to mark the location of Dickey's Fort. Now, the, the field itself is... Like, just the this, this setting of it is just spectacular. You can see that it was definitely used at some point as a fort. But um, what, the, what the farmer wanted me to see was how he came as a child up there with his father 
and how his father passed down the different stories. So we talked about absolutely everything to do with that show that it was on. It was the St. Patrick, it was Saul Church, and it was also the landing point. And it was because I was able to tell the story in the right way, he thought I was worthy of going out on those stage. And I felt so, so privileged to get out there. So privileged. Well, that really comes to the point that's really about the uniqueness of uh, your style and your ways. Um, Dwayne, because what you actually want the people to receive when they come out on the pilgrimage, on the tour with you, is that they actually see it as if through the eyes of a local person uh, and you have all the folklore, the stories, which really um, set you apart. Thanks very much, Elaine. Uh, like the, the folklore and the stories have been gathered partly through family history and oral passing down of that, but it also comes from just visiting the local people and getting to know their part of the story. And th- like this, this area is full of people. It, for some reason, it skipped my dad's generation, but um, in my grandparents' generation, that was very much alive. And that kind of gathering of all these stories and bringing them to the fore and helping them form part of the narrative around Patrick and the Pagan Hills is really where I, I just love it. People are always amazed that these kind of stories existed. But um, the fact that they're still here and still told is what really is remarkable. Yes, and also th- there's no surprise then that the likes of Mahan's Way and the RTE programme with Mary McAleese and Kira, um, all walks of life and the Irish news coverage and everything, it's wonderful because these are all treasures um, for the people and for the for the island. It's not just um, to be held, you know, in one's hand. You share them with everybody else. Yeah. So, like, I'm here not to tell my story. I'm here to tell the story of this landscape and St. Patrick within it. And what I love doing is telling people the story. I've apparently a very unique way of storytelling. So when I um, when I was writing my first book, um, um, Under the Shade of Our Lady's Sweet Image, uh, it was published by a local guy called Clive Schuller. And Clive, um, I, I randomly met Clive at the opening of the High Cross gallery in the Down County Museum so the reinstatement of the cross within the museum as a museum piece really and um, what happened was Clive bumped into me then he brought me out to his house with a few conversations and it was coming up to um, the end of the season for tour guiding and Clive just turned around and says to me I think you've got a book in you so within about three months I pulled together this bones of this book and published it and Clive did all the periphery but he said Dwayne you've definitely written that that's that's your way of saying that (laughs) (laughs) so I I try and bring that across as much as I can from not not so much an intellectual point of view but more of a storytelling point of view well in relation to your first book um that you mentioned um that's uh about the coastal parish parishes of Dunsford and Nordglass well, it's pretty very helpful to us um, because one of the walks that we do, um, you were there before us, is along the coastal route and we take the pilgrims along Ballyhorn into St. Patrick's Holy Well and then we finish at our glass golf club for lunch. Um, if you make it. If you make it. It's only six miles. <laughs> only six miles, yeah. But it's hopefully, thankfully, we've, we've made it to date. But I remember very often one of the great inspirations for me when I'm taking pilgrims along and for... Uh, Tony Bailey, one of our other guides as well, and Martina too, and Maria, is that um, I would have your book um, on Dunsford and our glass, and I'm able to show the pilgrims, the people, the pictures that you have in, the beautiful pictures of the people um, whenever they were at the Holy Well, hundreds of people at St. Patrick's Holy Well, and also um, our, our toll church and everything. So it really, I mean, I also read out that passage of the poem that you have about our toll church, the authentic one written by uh, Mr. Digney. Yeah. Uh, that you put in and 
we actually had a, at least one person ask for a copy of it. Um, so it really brings it to life, and uh, it's really a true source uh, for that for that pilgrimage for the people. Yeah. So, like, I, I have been doing that walk myself. I do it every May Day and Halloween, and the reason to do that is tied in with the kind of folklore traditions that that area held on to its folklore until the 1930, well, 1970s, actually. And um, it was the May Day morning. The farmers' wives would go down to the well, drown the Mayflower in it, and bring it home, put it out in their outhouses as a way of warding off fairies. And, like, we always talk about fairies being these really gentle kind of characters, and people were very, very afraid of them because they were not gentle at all. They they would have destroyed crops. They would have... The, the belief was they would have destro- destroyed your crops. They would have... Um, just killed your livestock and they could destroy your home as well and bring great misfortune to you. So um, the superstitions of that area carried right through until the 1970s. And when I was writing that book, what I wanted to do was bring the story of our toll to life. And the most remarkable character within that book, I gave him a place as a notable parishioner, even though he wasn't a Catholic. Uh, It's Francis Joseph Baker. He excavated... Um, our toll church in 1914 but he also re- reinstated the statue of Our Lady of Dunsford in 1908 and he lived in Jordan's Castle in Ardglass and he um, when he did the excavations what one thing he did was he found the largest collection of the old stained glass ever on the island of Ireland and it just was written up in his publication that it was in the National Museum so at that time you have to think back it was pre-partition so therefore the National Museum is the one in Dublin and I got in touch with um, Dublin and they said oh we have that here in the archives of Kildare Street it's not on show so they brought me down into the archives the first time I don't know whether I can say this or not the first time they left me on my own with a um, light box so I was able to (laughs) photograph each individual piece of glass and the second time when I went back they they knew I was going to use it for the cover of my book so they were like no we have to have the licensing for this image so therefore they brought back out the light box and they placed the glass on the thing for me but what Bigger wasn't able to do I was because colour photography wasn't around then he had an etching of what the glass looked like but I wanted that glass to be on the front cover of the book really as a kind of symbol of how important we were in the um, medieval era and it's like one church of eight like eight churches in that one tiny parish is a ridiculous number when you look into the history of why they were there it was the bishop lived there and he wanted to show off the wealth of his diocese to visiting clergymen and that was why we have eight churches that proceed on that route to his castle and um just to well you know this whole area is steeped in christianity it's steeped in monasticism so could we ask you about your own faith journey has patrick been an important part in your faith journey how so generally when I come to Down Patrick, I will visit the grave. I'll make it a, make it a way of going up there. Um, it's a very, very simple faith that I have. It's not, um, it's not the most devout faith that you could have. Um, it has been devout in the past, but just there's so, so many different things that um, kind of come in the way during life. But the faith is a, one thing I've always held on to. Um, and I, I don't know whether it was instilled from a young age because I was young, an altar boy, but... Um, it was only fairly recently that you're, I find that sometimes the church can over-edge, over-egg the tradition part and forget to tell you the reason why you do things. And it's the discovery of that that I kind of hold on to, that, that I have the faith that I have today. 
Yeah, because mm-hmm. you know, I suppose faith for a lot of people is 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 on the is on the wane. There's a new book out, "The Rise and Fall of Christianity." But do you think, uh, someone a person of faith, that Patrick's mission uh, will ultimately prevail? That the the faith that he sowed here will will not entirely be lost. I think if you look at what happened during the last couple of years with the pandemic, um, there was a mad rush. Like I. I the first time I had Holy Communion after the pandemic was over was at a wedding in County Kerry. And I actually nearly cried because I'd received communion for the first time. It, I think it was Ash Wednesday, it was the last time in 2019 that I'd received it. So it was May in 2021 that I received my first communion. And it was really just such a humbling moment. I, I, I didn't expect to feel that way. Um, but I remember... Um, the parish priest out in Dunstan North Glass, Father Jerry, was saying that um, there were people aching to get the communion. And it it really was an ache that I had and I hadn't realised, but it was something that kind of was very, very deep for me to experience. I, I, I just was overwhelmed by it. Well, um, we're coming to the end of our podcast very shortly. Um, Dwayne, thanks very much for sharing that amazing personal um experience there which is very touching but what I would like to ask you St. Patrick famously banished um, the snakes from Ireland and we know that that was um, a euphemism as it were for the Jura during wizardry at the time but what would you Dwayne banish from from Ireland if you had if you had that option today? What would I banish from Ireland? I would get rid of the coil barrier. <laughs> I, I honest to God, I would get rid of it because and explain why. Yes, yes. The, the reason is that St Patrick's buried by the sea, and people te- you tell people St Patrick's buried in Down Patrick, they're like, "Oh, is he? No, I don't think so." But if you actually take away the coil barrier, you would lose Market Street, which it would be you know an awful thing. But <laughs> we, lo- we lose our bank, and <laughs> what else did we lose? Uh, Oakley Fair, Oakley Fair, Oakley Fair, for the lovely scones. I think not. And, and the nice Americanos, I don't know what I would do without them. But um, the, the reason the coil barrier is there... <laughs> Damien might lose his shop. Damien's oh, no, no, he, shop he, there. Oh, you're not in Irish Street, Damien? <laughs> He's in Irish Street. He's okay. That, that, that was there before. Okay. But um, <laughs> the reason that the Market Street and Church Street exist really is because in 1745, a barrier was put across the, um, the near Coil Bridge, and that reclaimed 500 acres of land. So it was just money-grabbing, really. And then a century later, we forgot about that and just decided to build a road across it. So that's why Market Street is where it is today. <laughs> I always thought it was an altruistic act by the Southwell family to build this. Um, that's what I've been estuary. telling the pilgrims. So we've been telling the pilgrims. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was definitely more money-grabbing than that. But <laughs> on the story of St. Patrick banishing the snakes from Ireland, the legend is that he did it with an ash walking pole. So when I bring people out on my walks, I will give them an ash walking pole as part of that. And the one I carry has a shell on it. So when you look at the shell, you can see that kind of inspiration for those Celtic kind of drawings. It has the spiralling going on. And um, it's just, is that where the snakes came from? That that idea of the Celtic kind of intertwined um, thing that then became in, used on all the Christian crosses? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a mystery. I think it's kind of a, a symbol for paganism, the, the druids, the, the, yeah. that there's no actual snakes, but... Um, 
according to the scientists. But I sure. think we all grew up without a school that's sympathetic banished the snakes, but you would definitely banish the tidal barrier that, that's there at the yeah, minute. Yeah, I would, yeah. <laughs> I would protect what's there of Down Patrick, but I, I just feel it's a real shame that we lost that kind of coastal thing. Like, we could look like Anna Skill in here. That's how, that's how unique we could be. Dwayne, our <laughs> house would be underwater. That would be right. <laughs> but certainly, I mean, if the council hears us now, you might have a whole new plan in, in, in place now yes. next year. You can write to the council. So just before we head off now, um, Dwayne, just to ask you, what other plans do you have in the pipeline to continue your amazing promotion of St. Patrick and St. Patrick's country to all? So at the moment, I'm focused on one thing, which is improving on the St. Patrick and the Pagan Hills experience, which is going to incorporate some kind of reenactment down at the shore. So what will happen is when groups come down with me, they will be split into two groups. One group will go with Patrick, another group will go with Deku. And the two of them will explain the different traditions that are there. And they'll get the opportunity to put on the clothing of the Irish and of St. Patrick. And they will get an opportunity to hold St. Patrick's sword, over, or the Deku sword, over their heads to understand that kind of moment of intervention with Deku and how important and how impressive that is that he was restrained himself from striking out or felt that he was restrained from striking out. I, that, that's the full immersion into that experience, which brings that remarkable tale to life. Well, I have to say, Dwayne, I did your Patrick and the Pagan Hills tour for just for fun, and I had a great time. It's very relaxing and very informative, and you certainly put me to shame because you're a walking encyclopedia of this area, <laughs> and I do my best to tell the story. Um, but, Dwayne, thank you very much for coming into the studio and sharing with us your family history and your faith journey, and we're delighted to have shared this time with you. And thank you on behalf of Elaine and I and the St. Patrick Centre for... Um, your deep connection to St. Patrick and his, and his country and for your commitment to telling that story. Our podcast was produced by Dr. Tim Campbell and Damon McKee. Our thanks to them. And check out our website for some info on our amazing pilgrim adventures and all things Patrick at www.stpatrickcentre.com.